Welcome to the Writing Block Podcast, or the Indie Writer Podcast, as it's called now, by Writing Block, where we talk about all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we are talking with Becky Spratford, who is a librarian, reader's advisor, and horror expert, and Vivian Valentine, who is a horror writer and comic and graphic novel author. My name is Carrie Dubiel, and apparently I cannot talk or read this morning. (laughs) (laughs) How are all of you doing today? I think it's a pretty lovely day so far. So so far, so good. <laughs> awesome. It is a gorgeous day here in Northeast Ohio. And this morning was mostly spent homeschooling my son. So that's where I'm at today. <laughs> <laughs> but right now we, we have some peace and quiet in the Dubiel house. Just about the right time for something horrible to happen, right? In... Um, horror world well then you're in the right place then right you're poised for it that's like all of horror right the waiting for the catastrophe to come exactly exactly so since both of you are very into this genre i wanted to ask you first about what draws you to it i'm not much of a horror reader and i do enjoy i think what i enjoy most about it when i do read horror is i like the supernatural stuff i like werewolves and vampires and just random crap that could just come out of the woodwork but i'm not as into the whole like jump scare and um like tension on every page kind of stuff so why does that appeal to you and what else about the horror genre appeals to you so well vivian i'd love to hear about you as a reader and a creator first because i have more general comments about people in general that's a really interesting question um I, I'm worried I don't have a good answer because the fact is I really don't know. Um, <laughs> there's that um, line from the uh, the intro song to uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, life's no fun without a good scare. I guess you could say it boils down to that. I think to, to some extent there is, uh, from my experience as a transgender woman, there is a growing tendency or a recent trend I've noticed, especially among uh, queer people to identify more with the monsters in mythology and in fiction. So I think there's part of that. And also I think uh, just from my experiences dealing with gender dysphoria, there is sort of that, that draw to, to body horror, that idea of, okay, here's a way to understand that feeling or experience that feeling in a more safe way, if that makes sense. Mm. Or at least something they think, hey, I could definitely see, yes, this feeling that your body has betrayed you or is turning against you. Yes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's actually very common, Vivian, the, the body horror being more popular these days. It's completely a trend. And it's being embraced by what we would call sort of the, the not, I hate doing this, but there's like this, you know, white heteronormative world out there. And so everything that's against that, especially females, transgender, any people of color, body mm-hmm. horror and horror in general has been just a great outlet because these are the people. And even I talk about this all the time. Like the reason women are writing body horror is because they all feel it. Transgender women, you know, uh, people that identify cis as women, like it is your body goes through horrible things as a woman. And then there's mm-hmm. violence used against you with this body and trans women, women, 
people of color of any gender, any LGBTQ, feel this horror in their lives. And you're exactly right when you're saying, you know, you're feeling it and it's a way to experience it safely, those feelings. But the writing that's coming from groups, from not white males, from not heteronormative white males, is the best horror we're seeing these days, by far. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And it is it is not even close. And it is because of exactly the types of things you're talking about, Vivian. Well, I think... Um... I'm sure right now we're, we're probably all obsessed with Lovecraft, a Lovecraft country. And one thing I love about using the horror as the metaphor to deal with the actual experiences of marginalized people in America, when you look at the, um, just from the first episode, you compare the horror of dealing with the potential of discrimination, with the potential of racist violence. And then compare that to the horror of just dealing with, you know, a monster, which one really is more scary? And what's, as is presented in the fiction, what's the difference between the two? I'd argue there's not. I, I agree with you completely. And we take the idea that Lovecraft was a horrible human being who hated Absolutely. everyone that wasn't <laughs> like him. And the best work, and I've been saying this for years, the best work that is coming out in terms of Lovecraftian fiction are people who he would have hated in real life reckoning with the fact that he brought so much to the genre, but that they can use so much of the hatred he had and throw it back at him. And before we get wow. too far, since this will be out in October, I do want to say that every Friday in October, I'm working with Library Journal, and we're going to be doing a, a Twitter um, book club about the book and the show. We're going to do that every single Friday on Twitter, and we've been working with um, I've been working with this woman, Nia, a young African-American woman in Library Journal, and together we're putting together sort of a, um, together with articles I'm doing and pieces she's comparing, talking about some of the things you're saying, Vivian, and we're going to do that every Friday, and we're going to culminate the final Friday in October with a live event that we have 100% have uh, Matt Ruff confirmed, the author, and we're working on getting people Ooh. from the show, and we're going to be doing a live event that's going to be completely free through Library Journal. And we have other Lovecrafting scholars, people to talk about the race issues with it. It's going to be fantastic, and it's exactly right. The other thing about Lovecraft Country, since you brought it up, is the book was written by a white man, and the TV show is done by a black woman. Misha Green is mm. the um, head writer and the head showrunner. And mm -hmm. just seeing the differences is they're small, but they speak volume. So it's yes, it's you're absolutely right, Vivian, bringing up Lovecraft Country. I'm gonna have to look into that. I've never. So the book, yeah, the book came out. The book came out a few years ago and was really popular. And the TV show is streaming on HBO right now. Oh, on HBO. Yes. Okay. So that means it's probably like scary and bloody, and I'm gonna have to hide my head under the table. It. it, it so there's this fascinating thing. Um, I again, I I love horror. I love horror movies. My wife tolerates them. There's this, there's this joke in, in the house where um, the, the problem is everything I love is horrible. Uh, I remember at one point, I had been kind of a depressive episode, and, and um, my wife, Frances, he's like, what, uh, what do you want to watch that will make you feel better? I said, I don't know. Can we watch um, Evangelion? And she just looked at me and says, how is that going to make you feel better? You are hitting on exactly the thing I want to say about the appeal of horror. And I love that I have you saying why you like it, because it then can underlie the research and the things I tell library workers who are like Carrie. They're intrigued by horror, but they often are afraid of reading it. 
It's exactly what you're saying. <laughs> One of the biggest appeals of horror for many people is it's worse than their real fears, their right. real anxieties, their real horrors. It's a way for you to say, hey, I'm feeling terrible. The world is garbage, you know, dumpster on fire. But this, it's not as bad as this, right? There's no giant <laughs> tentacled monster coming to get me. There's no zombie chasing me down the street. And we laugh at that, but Vivian, you're exactly explaining it. It's one of the main appeals of horror. There is a reason that over the last four years, both the Hallmark Channel and horror have exploded. They are two different ways to deal with an unsettling general feeling. Either you want to see something that makes you feel more comfortable and happier place, or you want to see something worse. I like to read romances and cozy mysteries. Like <laughs> When I feel that way, but you know, there is something just so unsettling about horror and, and something so like profound about it too. Like when I do read in that genre, cause I read everything. I love to read everything. And when you were talking about new books by um, women and people of color, I just keep thinking I would like to read Mexican Gothic. At some oh, point. it's so good. But I heard there was one part that was really gross there is one part that's really gross, but it is clearly coming, and you could skip it. Okay, so I'll know. It's toward the <laughs> end. To she goes into a basement. I'll just tell you that. Then start, okay. you know, like a tunnel. Just stop reading there and skip ahead, and you'll get the point. <laughs> I I kind of I thinking about that. I kind of want to circle back to um the since we're talking about like gross stuff, um <laughs> to splatterpunk in general and the concept I don't know a lot about it. And as well as the body horror, I don't really understand that very much as well. So maybe if Vivian, if you would want to comment on that. Absolutely. So splatterpunk is a genre. It, um, as uh, Becky was saying earlier, it really kind of emerged in the, the early to mid eighties. That was sort of its heyday between this period between um, the eighties and the nineties as sort of a, a reaction to more, I want to say necessarily cerebral forms of horror, but less... Uh, less visceral. Less overt. Definitely less visceral. There's um, there's this, this quote I, I very much remember from, uh, I may be mispronouncing this word, Dance Macabre, which was a, a book that Stephen King wrote on horror in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, he described his idea of there being three levels of horror in fiction, uh, terror, horror, and revulsion. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Terror, you have more that feeling of the, that, uh, that that creeping dread, that gradually ratcheting tension with um, you don't really know what's happening. Something bad is going to happen. You don't necessarily know what. Uh, horror is the moment where now all of a sudden you do the horrible thing has happened or is happening and you're dealing with it at the moment. Uh, the monster has appeared and is chasing you or, or whatever. And then revulsion become to the part where the monster finally attacks. Uh, turning back to Lovecraft Country, we can see uh, in the climax of the first episode, the moments where our main cast, and I, I apologize, I'm, I think, spoiling this for you. Well, it's eight episodes. So you're only spoiling the first one. True enough. <laughs> uh, you, you have the moments where the police, have, uh, the racist cops have captured our uh, our, her our heroes and are taking them off in the woods for what we know is going to be a lynching. Before that, the moment where they're trying to flee a sundown county, being chased by the sheriff, who is clearly obeying the letter of the terrible laws, but not the spirit. 
And so the, 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 the mounting tension as they're, they're going down the highway, they're trying not to speed because if they speed, the cop can catch them. It is terrifying too. It's a hundred percent real. That scene is terrifying. They do it like a horror movie and there's nothing supernatural about it. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And then finally they, they think they've reached the county line. They're safe. And the cops from the next county over are waiting for them. Yeah. <laughs> and so now you have the horror of the monster, which in this case with the racist police, have captured them and they're taking out the woods. And then the the, the more supernatural monsters attack. And um, uh, out of nowhere, this multi-eyed uh, mole monster tears off one of the cops' arms. Out of nowhere. You're absolutely right. <laughs> At the moment of highest tension, like when you're waiting for the cops to kill them. So getting back to, the, to what Stephen King was saying, uh, he, he viewed it as sort of a, a progression, really more of a, a, de- a regression in horror. You know, there, the idea is, the terror is the superior form. And then if I, so if I can't, uh, first I'm going to try to terrify you. If I can't terrify you, I'm going to horrify you. And if I can't horrify you, I'm going to revolt you. Mm-hmm. So the argument with Splatterpunk is that, no, this is all valid. Revulsion is as, as equally uh, a valid form of frisson as, uh, as the other two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's lean into that. Let's really lean into that. And so what they do today, too, and I was I was saying this before we started recording. By the way, I want to side note, Librarian, Dance Macabre is the best book still to understand horror. Every library owns it. It's in all of my documentation, my my blog, my books, that you need to go read it. And you're exactly right, Vivian. It, it encapsulates it. And yes, I hate when we say like cerebral horror, literary horror, and this idea that we have this revulsion and this extreme horror and this splatterpunk that really leans in. When it did become less popular, it wasn't because there was less of an interest when we got to like, you know, the late 90s. It's that mainstream horror started picking it up and realizing that we can still have those things. I think a great example today of someone who's considered at the high level of horror, but who still does not shy away from those visceral revulsion scenes is Stephen Graham Jones. Um, and he's a Native American uh, horror author. His book, The Only Good Indians This Year, is going to be at the top with Mexican Gothic of as one of the best horror books of the year. He has never, ever shied away from revulsion. The first story I ever read by him um, was not even, was 100% real life horror. Um, the basic idea of it is that the father is and his son are stuck in, um, are, are stranded in the snow and they can't, they're not getting saved. And the father keeps going out to hunt for rabbits and is bringing back food for his son, but won't eat it. And you find out at the end that he's actually been going away to carve meat out of his own leg to feed his kid. Mm. It does, and it's one of the best stories I've ever read. He doesn't shy away from that. So what happened is with 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 Splatterpunk, is that the good thing was people saw how good it was and how popular, and then the quote unquote mainstream authors started leaning in more too. But then what has happened in the last three years is there's been this re um, evaluation of some of the more hardcore they call it extreme horror and Splatterpunk that isn't getting the recognition it deserves from some of these smaller presses that specialize in. And these smaller presses are doing great. Um, 
Uh, Deadite Press is one example of one of the bigger ones. And this mm. uh, huge community on Amazon with self-published authors, indie authors, who are yeah. writing this great extreme horror that is getting critical acclaim. And so now they've restarted a whole award system with KillerCon, which happens every August in Austin. It's run by Rath James White, who's a, and then Brian Keene. They're, and they're both known for extreme horror. And they've been giving out... Um, They've been giving out uh, Lifetime Achievement Awards every year to honor the people that people might know about. They have um, award categories in all the major categories that you would have, like novel, novella, stories, anthologies. And they just finished their second year, I believe. Maybe it was third, but second year. And they're bringing back legitimacy to it to because it got more mainstream for a while. And now they're really saying, no, there's still people doing this extreme stuff. And it's fantastic to see because from the library perspective, when we start giving awards to something, we can then buy them and collect them in our libraries and open up to more people. The novella that won novella of the year this year is a book called One for the Road by Wesley, Wesley Southard. I uh, covered it in Library Journal a year ago, October, in my column, uh, the Reader Shelf column, and so 2019, October. It was one of the best books I read last year, and it got that award. And I'm hoping libraries will start carrying those books as a result so that more readers can find these wonderful stories. Yeah, I agree. I I think libraries spend a lot of time discounting indie authors, and I could do a whole podcast on that, not even related <laughs> to horror, right? I mean, well, this is the Indie Writer Podcast, although we do have traditionally published authors on, like our last episode was all about pitch wars and hybrid authors, which is what I am. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we really, we want all forms of good craft and writing to shine. And you make a good point that there are a lot of people, um, EF Schrader in mm -hmm. the uh, Northeast Ohio chapter of the Horror Writers Association is doing a lot of good work. And, you know, since I'm not as big of a reader on it, I don't know a lot of the names, but there's definitely... I know the people are out there. I can say I have worked with two writing block members who have published collections of short stories. I should, because we're talking about this is the writing block podcast. I should mention we have a new anthology. Well, it's not an anthology. It's a collection because it's just one author, but Allie Welch, who we'll probably have on a future podcast. I've just finished editing her new work. So that is an indie collection of horror short stories, which I, they are very much in the vein of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like they're funny, uh, but they also have a lot of crazy weird stuff happening. There is a Lovecraftian monster in one of them. Awesome. Carrie, you also asked about body horror. So Vivian, if you want to talk about that a little more in detail. Absolutely. So there's um, a broad spectrum of what that can cover, but generally there it involves uh, various forms of uh, unwanted or unwelcome transformations. And when we think of body horror, often we think of uh, stuff that's really, really grotesque and I'll say in your face, but really noticeable. I think uh, your average Cronenberg uh, film uh, is a good... Uh, a good intro, but you can also uh, do very go with these very very subtle forms. There's a a classic Ray Bradbury story I remember reading 
in, I want to say, sixth grade, where it's just this uh, kid has a fever. And over the course of the sickness, he, he really feels like somehow all of the cells in his body have been replaced with something foreign. But there's no physical transformation that anyone else can see. It's just this creeping sense of alienation from his own physical form. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote uh, a similar story. Yeah, I want to say it's in... I want to say it's in his Fragile Things collection, or it might be in the other, uh, with it just following a similar sort of uh, concept, except focusing on it as a metaphor for uh, STDs. Hmm. Or it's the same thing where this, this guy suddenly feels that his that the cells in his body are being gradually replaced with something else. And in both cases, the the stinger at the end is that it succeeds. And it just stops there with kind of the mention, oh God, what's going to happen next? This does what it doesn't want to spread. And I think what's happening now with body horror, as I mentioned before, with, and especially women taking it on. Um, so one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years, and it did win the Bram Stoker Award for Best First Novel, is by a female horror author named Gwendolyn Keist. And she's quite amazing. She's It was an indie book. Um, and it's called The Rust Maidens. And I actually gave it a star in book list when I reviewed it. It is a great example of this idea that Vivian was bringing up that body horror does not have to be gross to be body horror. Um, in this case, and Carrie, you should read this book because it's set in Cleveland in the 1980s. It's got two stories. It's the, it's the, that's why they're called the Rust Maidens. It's this um, indictment of the idea of the Rust Belt and the dying city. It's set then as when these young women are girls and then it's set in like the present in the, in the 21st century when one of the girls who survived has grown up. Um, and these are Rust Maidens. These are, these are, teenage adolescent girls so already we have this idea of you know puberty and the body changing it's this horrific atmosphere in that all the plants are closing everyone's losing their jobs you know the lake's on fire um it's a dystopia in real life and these young girls in this one neighborhood start turning into these beautiful monsters that actually sparkle and they become a um and it's horrific i mean they actually change into these things and um but yet it's oddly beautiful and then people come to see them um, and like, you know, to, to see the rust maidens. And there's this one woman who's now grown, who's recollecting to that time and then living in the present. And it's just, it's this indictment of so many other things. It's like, like Vivian said, it's about so many other things, but it's also this very real body horror situation that's going on. Um, and it's, and it's, and like I said, it's terrifying it can be a little, it's it's not quite gross, it's completely unsettling, but it's also really beautifully written. Um, and I think that's where body horror is doing such a good job. Again, because we have the people who feel the horror of their bodies, whether that's like, like I said, people of color who, you know, feel it every day they go out of the house or women who feel, you know, LGBTQ, whatever it is, those are the people that are claiming it because they understand it and they're able to deliver it with so much nuance and even more terror that it's changing the genre in front of our eyes. Although there are still some fun all-out gross romps that I'm going to suggest if you want like an all-out gross body horror. Um, Nick Cutter, who's actually Craig Davidson's like extreme horror name, he's an award-winning Canadian author, but Nick Cutter does some amazing body horror. The best of them is The Troop which Carrie, you should not read, but it's about a Boy Scout troop that somehow ends up on this island where this parasite is 
I definitely should not read that. But it's that would be like your all out romp yeah. of a like like the old you know what Vivian was saying what people think of as body horror. Still very yeah. good. Totally different. <laughs> yeah. That's that is that helps. That crystallizes that for me a little bit. I'm thinking of at first when you first said it, I was thinking more like ha- Kafka and um or Kafka and Metamorphosis and that would be like a classic thing, but now I think of more, you know, I can think of more things. Zombies too, don't you think? Yes. Zombies. I actually did a thing for Women in Horror Month in Nightmare Magazine last February. Yeah, February, um, because that's Women in Horror Month. Or March, whatever. I think it's March. I can't remember. February or March. Um, And it was a roundtable at that, and we talked about how zombies are, yes, definitely a form of body horror. Um, They are, I think the reason, one, one of the things I like to say is, the reason body horror is so popular now is we've we all got sick of zombies <laughs> right but body horror is another way to explore those some of those ideas um in a new direction because it's not just the readers i mean vivian i know you say you write a whole bunch of stuff like you get sick of one thing all the time nobody in horror no horror writer writes the same type right. of book all right. the time it's not like mystery where they always write like the same character forever right vivian like you try to explore different ways of absolutely horror. um one of the the other genres I've always been I've been fascinated with for a very long time, and actually, um, the uh, young adult novel I completed uh, this year that I'm uh, uh, planning on uh, publishing via Amazon later, if I can be forgiven a short plug. Um, oh, yeah, plug it away. falls into cosmic horror as sort of that because we were talking about earlier that uh, that reclaiming Lovecraft mm. uh, genre that's becoming really really popular. Well, I'm excited for that. So a cosmic horror YA that sounds fantastic. That will be very popular because a lot of teens love Cthulhu and all these ideas and they're really enjoying Lovecraft Country, but they need a little bit of their own protagonists in these stories. The uh, the, the big inspiration and, and what I, simply because we always think whatever we stumble across first as the start of this, uh, was Litany of the Earth uh, by Ruthana Emrys, where that um, Yeah, she's great. And what I really love about her stuff is the way she's actually specifically taking stuff from Lovecraft's mythos as a person that would, he would consider himself to be a monster and then focusing it through, through her lens. And one thing, one thing I really love about the way she did that is, you know, the, the ends with legacy series focuses on the deep ones as you know, this metaphor for uh, in general, the, the racism in America in the fifties, but doesn't the, the the big flaw I see in so many things, and I say this as a long time, lifelong uh, lover of the X Men, not just using the the monster or the supernatural figure solely as a metaphor for racism, but actually putting this alongside actual members of real life marginalized groups. Uh, I think that's so important because the problem with taking okay, we have uh, basically hybrid fish people. And the lesson we're learning, we're learning from this is that it is wrong to be racist against hybrid fish people. And that doesn't really work for us <laughs> because as far as I am aware, yes. <laughs> there are not hybrid fish people in the real world. Oh, wouldn't that be cool? There really were. would. I mean, anyway. so, since this, I'm, since first reading Litany, I have become fascinated with the deep ones and wanting to work them somehow into my own work. Yes. Um, but the problem with when you, when you see these metaphors in a lot of things you end up with this situation and people have discussed this to death before where you have people who are all white and all straight 
and all cisgender and almost always all male. Right. And then you have the stand-in for uh, Black Americans or for LGBT people or for sometimes just for women. And they are some kind of non-human. And what is the argument of this? What is what is the, the actual lesson we're learning here? All it's doing is holding up the stereotypes exactly. and the structures. Exactly. Well, and then combine with that with the things like, okay, the deep ones or, or to use what's really popular these days, really always has been mutants. I, I, to its purposes, I, I am a, a queer woman, but I am a white queer woman. So while I am not authoritative on the subject of racism, I do feel I can say that if you meet someone who can shoot lasers from their eyes <laughs> and you are nervous about that fact, <laughs> I don't think you're doing a racism. I could be wrong, but I'm, <laughs> I feel very strongly that. And that, so the idea there is, is that, okay, these, these, these people are scary because they are different from you and it is wrong for you to be scared of that. And that's, a, I think, a really bad take on it because in the real world with um real world marginalized groups all of the fears and all the prejudices are, are basically based on um uh, i do apologize for using strong language here are based on bullshit yes so when you make your metaphor actively more dangerous you're actually reinforcing those prejudices in my opinion yeah and the way she does things is so much more nuanced. We're talking mm-hmm. about, um, yeah. And and I appreciate as a white Jewish woman, the way she uses Judaism, which also would make um, H.P. Lovecraft, you know, gag that she's doing this as part of it too. Oh, and I, I love that because again, you know, it's, and that she's a woman. And I think it's so interesting. We have three women here discussing horror. I do obviously, Carrie, you know this, tons of discussions this time of year with people about horror. And the people, in the years I've been doing this, this is the first year where I'm almost exclusively conversing with women about horror. That's really cool. I know. And I'm just sitting here thinking, and and as you're talking, Vivian, I'm like, my gosh, this is another one I've done with just women. I just did a podcast last weekend with only women. I've been doing this thing with Library Journal with almost only women. Um, I'm so excited about that. And I think the things that Vivian's bringing up, women, people of color, LGBTQ, bring that. They're, they're making that nuance important and are going to change, you know, the structures. I, I And um, I do a lot of lecturing about sort of breaking down systematic racism in librarianship already. Um, and uh, this idea that you said about the bullshit, that it's a white heteronormative cisgendered able-bodied is the quote unquote norm is a, is a construct. And so the more we chip away at that and don't accept that as a norm and horror is a great place to do it as Vivian's talking about, because we set up the other as the scary for, for so long. And yet now we're sort of subverting it with the people who have felt the most victimized by that dichotomy and that's why also horror is so popular now. It's not so simply because the world is a dumpster fire and people want to be feel better. That is some of it. But if it wasn't good, if it was still that unnuanced stuff Vivian was talking about, it wouldn't be, people wouldn't be feeling it as much. I think too, like, not to divert from the topic of EDI because it's so important, but also people are feeling some body horror when it comes to COVID, you know, the fact that you could Mm -hmm. get that 
you could get it and it could transform you. I mean, it's a very real possibility, especially considering the long-term potential effects. And there's definitely a lot of fear just kind of brewing the fear, at least for me, about the election and what might happen Mm -hmm. in November. So there's just a lot of real fear and real horror going on that people couldn't explore in that safe place. And we're getting the responses again from more varied people than just, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world. You know, Stephen King is great. Don't get me wrong. He's a great writer. But even he knows, and he goes out of his way to promote other authors. Like, it is one, you know, perspective from a privileged white man who knows what it's like to have been down on his luck. I mean, he's a recovering addict and all these things. But it's still, you know, right. It's still, he knows, and he's very conscious of it. Um, His son, Joe Hill, is very conscious of it, too, who's now a best-selling author and he tries to promote uh, like his lock and key um, series. That's hugely popular has a, um, I actually don't know. He's Latin. He's from Latin America. He's not American. Um, and he's a Spanish speaker, but the, the the artist is not, you know, is not white. And he's starting a brand new line of comics with DC called the Hill house. Mm. Um, it's going to be a mainstream DC comics, horror comics line. And of course the first person he picked to do it is one of my favorite authors who doesn't conform to any stereotype. Who's Carmen Maria Machado. Oh yeah. And so she did the low, low woods. And this is, Oh my God. She's so good. Her in the dream house memoir about, um, being a lesbian who had severe domestic abuse written the, it was last year, one of the best books of the year last year written from with the metaphor of the, basically the house. And it was as the whole book, there was sometimes it was a haunted house. Sometimes it was Cthulhu. She used that, but Oh my gosh, one of the best books I've ever read. And to be so brave, to be honest about domestic violence, you know, from woman to woman, domestic violence, which happens and, and needed to be talked about. But the Lola Woods is out now and it's going to be collected all the series. What a person, like she is just one of the best writers. She does body horror. She does, um, you know, obviously LGBTQ issues, woman issues. She does weird fiction. She has some cosmic, she does all of it so perfectly. And um, Joe Hill's like, this is who's doing my first one. Like there's no question. So there are people out there who are trying to use their, their voice uh, to help others. But they're there and they're ready. Like, and most of them are doing independent publishing and they need to be scooped yeah. up and, 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 and re- by readers and passed around. Yeah. That is awesome. And that is a good pivot to talking about graphic novels. Um, Vivian, if you want to talk a little bit about the project that you're working on now, I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, sure. So I'm thinking of it, a lot of it's still in the, the early planning stages, but uh, I'm leaning into sort of something that homages basically the um, after the water or after the safe harbor hour um, midnight horror movies on uh, late 70s, 80s, uh, early 80s television. And um, the first, uh, I recall the whole project is a toll uh, midnight on Channel Z because uh, one, I, I couldn't resist the B-52s reference. <laughs> And uh, as a side, speaking of which, when I found out that the lead singer of the 52s was married to a woman, that made like my entire day. <laughs> I can't, I know it's a silly thing. It's like, oh, wow. So like three fifths of the original B-52s lineup was gay. That's amazing. 
Um, I thought I thought it was five fifths. So there you go. Was so. it? Maybe I, I could be mistaken. No, no, no. I didn't know. I just assumed <laughs> <laughs> they are the best. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. That V fifty two is love. But anyway. Oh no. The I, I remember at one point I told my wife. Oh yeah. Did you know that uh, Fred Schneider did like a rap? as the intro for the last season of uh, Captain Planet episodes. And she stared at me like, That's awesome! It, it is awesome. And she's like, are you making this up? Because it sounds like the sort of thing you would make up. Oh my God, I'm looking that up as soon as we get off this podcast. <laughs> it's good because it's also terrible. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. This is, this is not a good piece of music. Aww. Okay, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But it's still amazing. Um, uh. Okay, so move, moving on. Um <laughs> So the idea of this graphic novel, it's uh, so this is this is the Splatterpunk project, and I'm kind of leaning into more the the punk end of it, in that sort of working class, uh, do it yourself, who cares if it's good, uh, because I, I'm not as good of an artist as I am a, I'm also drawing it myself, and I'm not as good an artist as I am a writer. Oh, but also the sort of uh, political leaning into it. Okay. One thing I think you got this this movement toward extreme horror towards splatterpunk is you know, we do look at the world today and um i'm sure we've all you may have seen the meme floating around uh aren't you tired of being nice don't you just want to go ape shit <laughs> yes <laughs> and so, do it in your graphic novel <laughs> exactly because you, in, in in fiction it's it, there's sort of this you look at the issues we have with authoritarian violence and whatnot and uh the rise of white supremacy in uh in america and other countries and there's, I think it's for many of us, there's this, this part of us is like, what if we just went out and kicked their heads in? Yeah. Like in the real world, we know, okay, politically, uh, in terms of long-term consequences, that's not a viable solution because of cycles of violence, the way these sort of things spiral out of control. But on the other hand, if you can just have in a fictional concept, construct have this kick-ass vampire lady roll into a small town in montana or somewhere and just machete a bunch of neo-nazis to death sounds awesome i'm signing right? up yep, because <laughs> sign me up uh there's just that, that sense you, where you see these scenes like you know they're i don't i remember a time i i hate i'm almost 40 I'll, I'll be 40 next month and i hate as I get older, becoming that back in my day person, but <laughs> I hear you. I'm close to your age. <laughs> I'm ju- I'm 45. I hear you. <laughs> I remember the time when we all agreed that neo Nazis were bad people. Yeah, thank like, you. I remember a point where we were like, um, if you if you were involved at all in the punk scene in the late 90s, there was a point where you realized you just had to beat the crap out of them to keep them out of your spaces because they yes. were going to come in, and you can't debate away someone who believes that a part of the population should be exterminated. Right. I actually read a think piece, and I don't remember where, but somewhere legitimate recently about how the neo-Nazis ruined the punk scene because they came in and took it over. I, I, it's a story I've heard in so many cases, yeah. and, and it's like every time you see it, it's like either the first time one shows up, you tell him to hit the bricks, or down the road, they're going to keep coming in and coming in and coming in, and the only way to move them is with a baseball bat. Ugh. But your point is a good point. The the horror of the political situation, like there was a point b- back in my day when we just agreed, yes, neo Nazis were not okay. Yeah, because, I mean, and and now we're at the point where they're like, okay, well, what if we take off the leather jacket and we grow our hair out and put hair gel in it and put on nice suits? Now all of a sudden we're in GQ articles. 
And right. it's like, it's yeah. the same thing. The fact that yeah. they can dress respectively doesn't mean they're any different from the hammer skins. And we got to let those vampire ladies out against them and stop them. Exactly. I love it. I think it's great. Can't wait to read this. This one, this is, I've got um, a very short eight page comic I'm working out that I hope to have on my Patreon uh, for Halloween as a way to sort of introduce the concept as a whole. And then the actual project, um, what I'm most likely going to do is spend the next year working on it. And then just release it probably as a webcomic once it's complete so I can just not worry about uh, making it to a schedule. Because I've, I have tried webcomics before and there comes to a point where it's very hard to keep up any kind of schedule, especially if you're trying to do long-form comic book storytelling. And people who like webcomics, people who like webcomics, like, love them and get upset if you don't stick mm-hmm. to it. And, and I've been reading you know, webcomics since they kind of started becoming a thing in the early 2000s, so I do... To an extent, appreciate it. You know what? Especially as someone who's tried this, you know what? Putting out a fully drawn and colored page every day is a lot of work. That's a lot of work. Especially if you're doing it, you don't know when the money is going to come in, if it ever does. And to to let you know, to let you know, librarians as like a group love webcomics. So this is a good chance also for you to get, you know, a bigger audience of people who are influencers who can, you know, actually promote your work to people because librarians love web comics. I do love a good web comic. I know me too. Yeah. It sounds great. That's so cool that you're drawing it too. Like I have zero inch of drawing skill whatsoever. I probably have negative two. If I was going to do a graphic um, (laughs) series, I would definitely have to have a collaborator. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky decision to make. And in part um, it starts because, okay, just, just thinking of, in terms of basically fairness, I'm really, I'm super huge into comics, web comics, traditionally published comics. And one thing that is very common within the industry as a whole is that it is absolutely garbage when it comes to labor issues. Mm, yeah, I've heard, I have heard that. It's not yeah. unique in that regard, but. But it's particularly awful. Yes. It, and it, it, it does not help that in many cases, and I, I do know I, I could potentially be uh, uh, weak, weak to this myself, where part of your quote-unquote compensation is that you get to work on Spider-Man or Superman or something like that. I have yes. heard that as well. Yeah. I know people who, who do that. Yes. So in, when it comes to thinking of how, how do I make a, you know, this work of graphic fiction, well, if I hire an artist or a collaborator, the, the question becomes, how do I fairly compensate you? Right. We come to a, an agreement where if there's money down the road, we'll have an agreement on how we split it because that is an awful lot of investment to ask of someone with the promise of jam tomorrow. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Writing is, no, you know, I'll be the first to say writing is uh, an investment of time. It's super difficult. It's very challenging. Yeah, but it's your investment in your time. You're not in asking someone else. Exactly. In terms of creating a comic book or a graphic novel or something, if you want to look at the division of labor here, it very, very highly favors the writer. And if you have that skill in drawing and and making art, that's really a cool thing to be able to pair those two things together. Uh, it is interesting, though, in the way that um, it does kind of change how you write if you're uh, because if i'm writing for uh a collaborator uh and, and different you know comic book writers have different um 
different takes on this. But you know, you there's there's a lot more, often a lot more detail involved. Um, Alan Moore, of course, notorious for writing, you know, textbook size scripts for a single issue. <laughs> uh, and then on the, the extreme end of it, you have, I, I always find this funny, is the way Marvel Comics has developed uh, this long running method for, for creating comic books whose origin is the, the complete collapse of Stanley and Steve Ditko's professional relationship. And that is the Marvel method, where basically the writer comes up with a plot and gives this to the artist and the artist draws whatever the hell they feel like. Oh. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm exaggerating for humorous effect here. Uh, very often there's a lot more collaboration there. And then the, the writer comes back and adds in narration and dialogue and, and whatnot. And like I said, very often there's a lot more, you know, back and forth. Back and forth. Yeah. And, and when that collaboration is great, you'll also have something amazing like, uh, the John Byrne Claremont, Chris Claremont years of the X-Men. Um, that's how they were created. Uh, when it goes bad, um, I've heard stories of uh, a writer you know, for, for writing a script that has um, the character sitting down at a cafe. And then when it comes time to to finalize the work, having to explain um, why the character is now suddenly being attacked by dinosaurs, because that's what the artist wanted to draw that day. <laughs> but that's a great point, though, because it is such a collaborative process. I think a lot of fun can come out of that, but now instead, when I'm, it, 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 in comparison, if you look at my scripts for comics I'm creating myself, and they're kind of awful, like it, not, not, not in terms of quality, but I mean, like I cannot imagine showing to someone say, "Yeah, so here's what I want you to draw." There's like, <laughs> there's like a line for each panel because I know what I want it to be, and I'm just giving myself like a basic note. Like she walks into the bathroom, and there's. Uh, and looks around, and that's it. <laughs> right. Because I, in my head, I know what the scene should look like, and I don't have to communicate with anybody. I'm just kind of ordering my thoughts and figuring out uh, the pacing. Then you can figure out how many squares to have the bloody dismemberment of the neo-Nazis. Exactly, so. exactly. Because it might need, it might need 12 squares you as might. opposed to just you like might. four. Yeah. That's yeah, no, that's, I, I could see how that would be frustrating as you're creating a story if you don't, especially many writers, now you obviously have artistic skills, so you can see it, but like, you know, I'm not that visual person. I'm much more of a writing on the page person. Yeah. I'm great at reading graphic novels, but I would have trouble turning things I write to explain to someone how to visualize them. So just getting that into words, I think sometimes is a barrier with collaboration, but since you can see it, yeah. that's that's great. I definitely doing a complete pivot but <laughs> with children's books i see that too like a lot of my my agent represents a lot of children's authors i'm one of her few adult authors so in our like facebook group where we talk about books i often have a hard time giving feedback to them because i can't see the visual i can only see the text and a lot of reading a children's book is about the pictures. Oh, yes. That's where the nuance comes. Yeah, and I, I feel, like, so clueless. I'm like, it's great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I feel like a graphic novel would be similar in that respect, just reading the script without knowing what's... Without the notes about the art or the art itself, yeah. Yeah. One really, and this is actually kind of, say how I learned how to uh, how to properly write a comic for someone else in the third 
volume of The Sandman, uh, one of the extras actually is Neil Gaiman's uh, script for issue 10. One of the one of the four issues contained in there because he went with a very detailed, you know, sort of this is number of panels on this page. Here's what happens in each panel. Here's the dialogue that goes to each panel. And that's that's more or less what I do. Just in, in my case, again, it's extremely bare bones. And um, it's neat seeing how it changed under the artist Kelly Jones interpretation. That is cool to go back and see that. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably been years since I read Sandman, so. Yeah, but that makes sense, though, and that's that's fascinating. But you do have to give less detailed notes to yourself. It's true. But yet, but yet you're still giving yourself notes, which I find fascinating. Well, part of it is, like I said, it is just uh, structuring, figuring out the pacing. Like in my for this this um, initial eight page comic, our our main character, our heroine, uh, Sophia Lacroix, uh, arrives in a diner. The, the the overall, for lack of a better word, storytelling engine for for her part of these stories is she's trying to construct this, this supernatural history book basically, and she's working with this unseen collaborator, who is basically sending her on a a series of scavenger hunts, and really it's just an excuse to have this character go into various situations and get into trouble, mm-hmm. and chop up Nazis. I mean, it doesn't sound that dissimilar to the Lovecraft Country idea, right? Right. There's excuses to send them on trips to get into good trouble. Because especially with these, with these, with you know, serialized uh, storytelling, often the big, the big question is, why is your character involved in this? How did they get into this situation? There's a lot of classic comics that I really love. Uh, Steve Gerber's work is notorious for this. He wrote. Uh, uh, the Man Thing and Howard the Duck for Marvel, where the problem is you've got this main character who really has no motivation or desire to get into trouble. But every month they need to get into trouble. <laughs> so what the so what the hell, Steve? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's a good point though about about horror in general when you talked about you know this idea of the supernatural book and going into this place on this scavenger hunt. That is a great plot device for horror anyway i'm not i'm not exaggerating that it's similar to lovecraft country even though it's completely different right because they're Mm -hmm. going for this order and they're looking for these things to stop the order from still going and they're on the scavenger but lots of horror does that it introduces a supernatural book a supernatural cult a supernatural like thing and there's usually some outside force drawing the main character there and yes that's the other reason why people love horror. Horror characters don't want to get into trouble. You're mm-hmm. absolutely right, Vivian. They're not looking for trouble. They're normally normal people who have a big flaw that we that we have to come of age throughout. Like there's no matter their age, there is coming of age in every horror, right? The horror protagonist has flaws they have to overcome and um, become a better person. And again, just to use like because we started with Lovecraft Country and people know of it, the characters in there, although we sympathize them with completely. The, the, the three main characters we have all have serious personality flaws that mm-hmm. they need to work out and personal <laughs> flaws that are that come out and then they have to come to terms with those and you know kill the evil things um, and, and stop the world from being destroyed by this order this ancient order but that's there in all of those books and and it is one of the reasons why people are drawn into horror is because the protagonists don't want to get into trouble they don't want to but it's being thrust upon them and they are the every person right and so they represent the reader also that they're thrust into this and they've got to figure it out 
which is why it's been interesting that in the last 10, last 20 years or so, you cannot expect, it used to be, that's why we could always expect in the 80s and 90s that the protagonist was always going to make it through. Always. The protagonist, you know, that's the, the whole final girl concept, right? Mm-hmm. That's really a big deal, the final girl. And, um, but the fact of the matter is, more and more, it is not clear that the protagonist is going to make it through to the end. And you cannot always count on it yep. because a little more real life is seeping in. Now, it doesn't happen in all of them. Don't, you, you're okay with Mexican Gothic, Carrie. Go read that. Okay. Um, but I have examples and I will not give them because they will ruin the books. But there are some major best-selling books where the characters do not make it, including a book I mentioned already in this podcast. I can think of one, too, that you and I both read. Becky that because I saw you reviewed it and I didn't like it as much as you did but I definitely could see where you were coming from on your rating yeah sorry go ahead Vivian that that comes into another um, interesting concept with uh, horror becoming more the province of of, of marginalized people of of people of color of queer people of women where if you look at especially in a lot of what we consider classic horror from the 80s even down into the 90s and probably before where there's this sort of small c conservatism to it um mm-hmm. probably the slasher flick is the uh the archetypal example here where you have this horrible monster who is basically killing people who transgress against social norms mm. yep and the final girl is the most virginal yeah uh, yep. So it was present in, in Halloween. Uh, it comes really into the fore in the the first few um, Friday the Thirteenth movies. There really is sort of this this sense that the monster exists to to punish transgressions, right? And you survive by not transgressing, right? By being the and, and Scream poked fun at that, mm-hmm. um, but but still conformed, right? So that was our first transition to that. Um, to that sort of deconstructing the slasher. I think I think that's the neat thing, or interesting thing uh, to keep in mind when it comes to you know satire and parody is that even when you do it right, you're creating an example of the thing you're parodying. It, it's really hard to, to to get away from that. That sense that and I, I think of this myself when I when I'm you know when I started working on on um, Beneath Strange Lights, my young adult novel. All right, I'm working. I'm not using any of the mythos elements because I wanted to create my own stuff, but I'm still delving into that. So in what way am I? What way are you upholding it? Yeah. So here's a, here's a twist, which here's a twist though. Two books this summer, because you know, I'm always going to suggest books, Carrie. Two books this summer, which took the slasher uh, genre and turned it on its head. One is by Stephen Graham Jones, also called Night of the Mannequins. It's a novella. And it's tour novella, and it came out uh, this this month, September. I think this is going to be in October, but it came out in September. And it is a total subversion of the slasher film. We do have a young man, and there's this evil mannequin that may or may not be real, and it may just be him, but it's a full stream of consciousness. And it really tries to deconstruct, again, written by a person of color, a marginalized person, a Native American. But the one that I think is even better, and it's categorized as a teen novel, but I think it's good for adults too, is called Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Cesare. And the idea, it, it's a Harper teen. Um, it is the slasher movie from the 80s, except the kids are from today. It begins with like their YouTubers. But the horror, the monster, the slasher is a clown, 
so it's super scary. Um, but the idea is it's the adults versus the kids. And it does subvert that whole idea because these kids, the adults have in this town have made them, have pinned these kids as bad and people who transgress. And, and they have in many ways, but they're not as bad as the adults have made them out to be. It's the adults that are so evil and they are evil. I mean, we learn how evil they are. And um, the kids, you know, have to escape basically the adults. And it is this whole, like, the, the going back to another thing we talked about, that back in my day, it's mm -hmm. the kids and their technology versus the older people who, and, and older people, like, just like in their 40s and 50s, we're not talking about super old, but they're very conservative and they're very, and they're the evil bad guys and they're the ones that get their comeuppance. And that's why this book is, is really drawing so much attention from people and they love it because I feel like it's one of those first slasher stories to really subvert the, the old norms of the slasher story. We'll see. We'll see if more come. Yeah. Well, I think we're just about done with our time, but I want to first put in another plug for our writing block books that fit into this genre. Uh, Grace Falls by G.A. Finocaro. If you want to go back, we do have another podcast on horror in our back catalog with uh, him and Susan K. Hamilton. So if you're wanting more horror, I was the host on that too. So you could listen to me going, I don't know anything about horror again for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of, you know, being friends with Becky for so long and by meeting all these horror authors, I will eventually learn more about it um, and know what I'm talking about. But, and then there's also Silly Little Monsters by Allie Welch that will be, Grace Falls came out earlier this year, but Silly Little Monsters will be out right around the time this podcast hits. So you definitely want to check out those books. So that's the writing block in the author podcast plug. Uh, Vivian and Becky, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you online? All right. Uh, I can be found on uh, a few different uh, forms of social media as It's Vivi Actually. Um, my Patreon, that's my Patreon, my Twitter, my Instagram. I have... Uh, hopefully two projects, definitely at least one project that I'll be releasing uh, through the Kindle store this October, hopefully in time for Halloween. Uh, one is my young adult novel, Beneath Strange Lights, starring um, a, a young trans woman named Amelia Temple and her mysterious powers. And the other is a sort of three short stories, a mix of the, a riff on The Invisibles by Grant Morrison and also me just busting on the Transformers franchise, which I love entirely too much for a 40 year old woman. Uh, <laughs> title is to be determined, but it will be uh, starring my uh, character, Lady Equinox. Cool. That sounds great. And Vivian, I have followed you on Twitter, so you need to get me all the things you do because I'm super <laughs> excited. Um, people can find me on Twitter at RA. For F O R all, that's my name of my company. I do a lot of library consulting, but my specialty is horror. Um, I have a blog, RA for all, which you can find on the Twitter. Um, but also, the the one you want to pay attention to now is RA for all horror. It is the online guide to my reader's advisory textbook. Um, so it's called the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror. The second edition came out in 2012 from ALA Editions. I am actually currently about halfway through with the third edition. So by this time next year, definitely the third edition will be out. I'm 
working on completely updating it. It's been very exciting, um, especially with all the great changes I've been talking about. So that will be available through ALA editions. Um, it'll be on their website. If you're an ALA member, there's a discount, there's e-version, book version. But I also want to make a plug for the Horror Writers Association. I am the secretary of the Horror Writers Association. They do value the fact that I am considered a professional writer about horror and I have active membership there. They're super, um, we are super interested in getting more members that are not just writers, but fans and librarians. We take writers at all levels. We have tons of scholarships. Vivian, you should look. We have, you don't have to be a member. We have a new diversity scholarship that I am one of the sponsors of that we will pay your travel costs to come to a conference. Um, so take a look I at that. on the look writers. That. Yeah. Horror Writers Association website. Um, and one of the things I do for them, besides being the secretary, I, I de facto in charge of membership, but I do run their Librarian's Day. The fourth annual Librarian's Day got bumped from May in person to a virtual free online event. I'd like to invite everyone, if you're a fan, a reader, or a writer, we're going to be doing it on the Horror Writers Association's YouTube channel. It will go live on November 1st. We are purposely waiting for the day after Halloween because we know you are all inundated with things in October. Um, it is free, but if you register, um, and all the information is available through my my contacts, and you can also just look up um, Horror Writers Association Librarians Day, but it's on Eventbrite for free. If you do register, you get access to a free asynchronous Q&A. We're currently in the process of recording our videos. Actually, Stephen Graham Jones was one of our hosts. I recorded it with him. Um, and we will be, um, the videos will be up in perpetuity, but through the month of November, we'll be taking asynchronous Q&A that will be answered by all participants. Um, so that'll be really great. And actually, one of our featured panels is a small press, Flame Tree Press. We're going to be focusing on them. Um, they get an entire panel, and that's being recorded in a couple days, actually, with their authors, really talking about what it means to be an indie horror author. So I think your your listeners will be most interested yeah. in that, because these authors all have really great paths to um, publishing, both self-publishing and indie publishing. Um, so you should check that out on the Horror Writers Association's YouTube channel starting November 1st. I might definitely have to tune into that. So, well, thank you both for being here and we will see you on the next time.